Hello, listeners, and welcome to Area of Expertise, a Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition podcast where we cover all things D&D. From the massive worlds you build to the heroes you play, AoE has you covered. Happy listening! Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Area of Expertise. So today's going to be a little bit different from the usual episodes that we do, because today there is no other guest. It's it's just me. So this is going to be our first uh, solo style episode, and I wanted to do this episode solo because we're covering a topic today that I'm very passionate about. It's probably my favorite thing to do when starting a new D&D campaign, or just you know sitting in for a group of players who need a one shot or something. When you're doing a homebrew campaign, one of the biggest design parts that you have to do is actually building the world itself, and we covered that in our very first episode. In fact, if you haven't listened to that first episode, I do recommend going through that before going through this one, because we're going to be touching on a lot of topics that we covered in that initial episode um, in this one, so be sure to cover that if you haven't already. So today we're talking about map making. Generally, the map itself is sort of an abstract thing in D&D. A lot of times in the pre-built uh, modules, it just gives you a general map that your players can go look at. And while this is all well and good, having an already made map, sometimes you want to put your own little spin on it. You know, maybe you want to put a piece of yourself into this world that you want your players to discover. So first thing that you do whenever you're making a map is just deciding where you're going to start. And you can start in a program. You could do it freehand. Uh, freehanding takes a lot of uh, sort of hand dexterity and skill as well as looking at the way people have done maps in the past because, believe it or not, in real life, we used to hand draw our maps, you know? Uh, back in my day, back in the late 1800s. But in D&D, you usually have a handful of choices. And I'm going to outline a few of these choices that I believe are really good, some that maybe aren't so good. Uh, where I want to start, though, is with a website called Donjon. That is D-O-N-J-O-N. And it's been my sort of go-to place for uh, generated maps. And when I say generated, that means you give the website a seed, maybe some sort of criteria that you're looking for, and it spits you out a result. Now, this result isn't nearly as hand uh, put together as maybe some of our other options but i can guarantee that if you need a quick map for maybe you got pulled into a session that you're dming that night and you don't have time to throw together a map or like a whole new world you can go into donjon give them some parameters and it'll spit out a map for you it's easy peasy one of the other programs that i know i see a lot is a campaign cartographer and i believe this one is paid i haven't used it myself but i do know a handful of dungeon masters that have and uh, they swear up and down that it's one of the like most dive downable <laughs> pro programs that you can use when getting into map making because of the sort of sheer flexibility that it gives you it's sort of like the photoshop i guess of making maps and you can make maps in photoshop don't get me wrong if you have the adobe suite and you know all about that just go ham you know just look up some assets grab them and all that uh, but the program that i have gravitated towards 
for the last four or five sessions that I've DM'd has been Incarnate. And now this isn't, this is gonna kind of sound like an ad for Incarnate, and I promise it's not. We're not sponsored by Incarnate at all. But I do believe that for newer DMs, maybe DMs who want to get into the map making space but don't know where to start, Incarnate is a fantastic tool for that. In fact, the last three campaigns that I've done, I've made my maps entirely in Incarnate and Donjon, like using them sort of together to make maps because while incarnate is super super good for making very detailed maps and very personalizable maps donjon is very good at generating the stuff that you maybe don't need to do a lot of hand uh hand making for stuff like city layouts and maybe uh small encounters and caves and dungeon layouts that kind of stuff is really easy to generate through donjon but incarnate is where you get your world like exactly perfect exactly how you want it um in fact if you are watching this on the youtube version i will include links to pdfs of some of the maps that i've made in incarnate and this is uh these maps entirely are for a campaign that i'm doing uh weekly it's for a very large party so that the map is um it's, it looks very clustered but there's a handful of areas that the players get to explore so it's it kind of offers a nice sweep of everything. Also, um, since since it's just solo me, I'm recording in my home studio. So if you hear um, maybe some like clacking in the background or I don't know, maybe like a bark or something. There's a three pound Labrador, that, or not three pound, three year old Labrador that likes to uh, mosey around my studio. It'd be amazing if she was only three pounds, but she, she's a very large dog. All right, so let's actually get into the meat of this podcast this episode uh but first i want to talk a little bit about what we usually talk about to begin these podcasts and that is our adventures this week in DD. now admittedly i haven't had a ton of my own personal happenings in DD. however this week i did start a new campaign with another group of new players now this area that i live in is they're incredibly starved for DD. we only have like a handful of game shops and by a handful i mean like maybe two <laughs> in a good few years and those game shops are very uh i don't want to say player hostile they're new player hostile uh people don't like to go into the leagues or whatever unless they know people and DD is a very social experience at its core um so those players, while they desperately want to play D&D, they want to play it with people that they know. And I have some connections with these people. I have some friends of friends. So it's very easy for me to just kind of, you know, we all sit down in the living room, we pull out our D&D books, and we just play a game. Um, it's a very small party. It's not really what I'm used to. I'm used to very large parties uh, just because of the whole social aspect. A lot of people like to play, and when they see their friends playing, they want to jump in, and then you get, like, massive seven to like nine to ten person parties and that's it's, it's a lot it's a handful but this party that i'm managing now is three people so it's super super easy uh to just run things together they're not really going to separate too much it's a very streamlined experience and I'm, I'm really enjoying it this is the first small party that i've been able to go through also, with this party, I should mention that on, on top of our theme, the campaign for this party is entirely metropolitan-based. It is all based in a very large city. Think like, uh, think kind of like Waterdeep in the sense of the grand scale of this city. It is one of the largest cities in this region. The players don't know what the grand map is because the entire map is meant to take place 
inside the city walls. They shouldn't be leaving the city, but they might, you know, it, it's it, it's very early stage. We only had a couple of sessions, but uh, we're actually going to talk about that a little bit into this podcast or this episode. Rather, we're going to talk about city based campaign and city based map building because it's very different from main terrain map making. All right. So let's say that you've picked your program. You have your tools. You have brushed through everything that you need to do to actually design your map, but you don't know where to begin once you put pen to paper. And that is where I like to look at other sources. Think of the kind of campaign that you want to put together. Think of your region. Maybe you want to be a snow campaign or a forest-based campaign, mountain-based campaign. Really pick a terrain type that you want your characters to start in. And if you're making a smaller map, go for that. Um, if you're making a larger map, we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But first, in terms of inspiration for a map, I really enjoy just going into Google Images and typing in a D&D map and just seeing what comes up. Because this game has been going on for many, many, many years. And many, many people have had their hands at making maps. I like to see what other people are doing in the map making space. Maybe get some ideas for you know, land shapes and certain terrain types, you know, what they're putting together. Um, along with the Google imaging thing is you can join certain Facebook groups. And I know there's a handful of very uh, active Facebook groups for D&D 5e that you can all hop into. And there's a ton of people who are very passionate about the game. And the same goes for Discord servers. There's a, a plethora of D&D Discord servers and they almost always have an area where you can put your maps. So. I guess if you're building a map for the first time, my biggest first step is always just look at what other people are doing. See what the kind of expectation is. Also look at ones that are officially licensed by wizards. Look at uh, the maps of the Sword Coast. Uh, look at the ones that come with the beginner set. In the Minds of Phandelver uh, campaign has a very, very well-made map. and. It, it just gives you sort of a scale of what to expect when you're making this kind of thing, what your players are going to expect, because they've never seen your map before. You have never seen your map before. You, they have an expectation of what it's going to look like, and you should also have your own expectation of what your map is going to look like. So get a reference first before really jumping into it. Okay, so you've got your ideas, and you have your pen to paper now time to pick a region and by picking a region i mean where are your players going to start and i mentioned before you need to pick like a terrain type but when you're building an entire region your region should definitely have more terrains uh you should have more than one terrain per region for variety's sake your players are going to go all over the map and a good dm shouldn't really limit where your players should go on the map you should you should kind of push them in general direction, but like don't let them wander off, you know, <laughs> deep into the oceans of places uncharted, because that would be bad. But kind of give them guidance about where you want them to go in your map. And where I usually go with picking terrains, I usually just pick a temperature. Do I want it hot, warm, cold? Um, I generally tend to pick uh, more temperate regions, maybe a uh, very lush kind of Midwestern plains to start my characters in just because it's a very homey, like very familiar sense for my players. Um, 
but when I'm putting the entire region together, I like to section it off because, of course, just like in real life, uh, D&D worlds, while they don't have to emulate the real world, it's much easier to base them off of the real world. So the northernmost parts of the maps probably going to be a little bit colder. The parts near the center, maybe the equator of your world, are going to be a little bit more arid. You know, think of uh, kind of how the North and South America are laid out. So Canada is generally more cold, while the United States and Central America are more uh, temperate, more wetlands. And then maybe as you get more south, it starts to get a little bit tropical, and, and then it gets more arid again, and then it's back to uh, cold. So kind of think about the real world while you're putting these together. Um, and just like we mentioned earlier, maybe your setting is in a city. Now, how do you put together cities? You generally want to think of uh, just as a regular city. A lot of cities are very circular in their overall shape, um, especially if you're going for the kind of that medieval European vibe. A lot of cities have a large structure in the center. That's usually the civic center or the area where maybe the mayor or the king in some cases, depending on your governmental system of the city, uh, that's where they reside. And then it kind of tears off from there with um, sort of common folk and uh, farmers and mundane workers kind of living near the outsides of the city. And you can decide, do I want my cities to be walled or do I want them to be relatively open? And that's totally all up to you depending on how you want to go about your city creation. And uh, kind of like how I mentioned earlier, Donjon is fantastic for this because you don't need to place every single house and every single shop and building into your map when you can let Donjon do it. You can just have them generate a whole bunch of maps and roadways and you can just go ham from there. It makes a very large, very detailed PNG that you can zoom in and zoom out and really kind of flesh into the um, it, into the world you want it to be. The only downside with using Donjon for this sort of um, application is that it tends to name districts for you. And that can be difficult if you like that sense of gritty customization that comes with map building. You like to name your districts. You like to name your like towns and, and um, maybe smaller boroughs and villages within a larger city. And that's kind of the downside with Donjon. If you want to do something like that, you should definitely go with the full hand-drawn route. Because I haven't found, personally, a very um, in-depth city map builder. Um, and, of course, it's it, there's always going to be something out there. If anyone knows anything at all drop me a line because i'm i'm very much looking for a very in-depth city builder and when you're making a city-based map don't forget that the city much like an onion has layers so they don't always have to be your players that is they don't always have to be above ground maybe there's a sewer system that's very very sophisticated lots of labyrinths and these can be your like quote unquote dungeons um, in your city-based setting. And we talked about this last episode with the uh, the dungeon making, but a dungeon doesn't have to be a dank crypt or a castle. It can be a sewer system. It can be the basement of a tavern. It can be the tavern itself, you know? It, it can be really whatever you need it to be. But in a city, you don't really get that general dungeon vibe. And 
that, that way we fix this is with sewers and you can put whatever you want in sewers. There's giant rats, maybe there's like mutations that are making horrible monsters down there. You can really customize your sewer to however you see fit. And it just doesn't have to be for like big cities either. Small cities can have sewer systems depending on how advanced you want your world to be. And I, I'm going off on a little bit of tangent. That's getting back into the <laughs> into the world building aspect. We're talking about maps today. You know, we're talking about the grand design of maps, and it can be intimidating. It can be intimidating to get into the world of building. Well, your world. If you put together an entire map in a night, it it can be a lot of work. So I tend to focus on maybe smaller portions, maybe just one continent of my world or maybe just a region of that continent. When people start to design continents, uh, that tends to be what a lot of dungeon masters gravitate to because it's large enough that your players can explore and really get involved into the world, but small enough that you can actually put it all together without having a whole bunch of dead space that you don't know what to do, maybe you don't know why these areas exist and what have you, but it's, generally easier to focus on just a region of a continent maybe just like how if we were making a map like if we design north america maybe instead of focusing on entirely north america maybe we just focus on building you know uh maybe like canada let's just build quebec you know and that'll be our campaign setting it's plenty large enough for people to run around there's lots of cities and geographies to explore and uh, it's it's a lot easier than building an entire planet from scratch, let me tell you. When you get into building a continent, um, instead of a region, maybe you want to expand a little bit. Maybe your campaign stretches leaps and bounds across massive uh, massive areas. Your campaign is like, um, let's, let's have an example. Maybe like a, a war has broken out and war is a very divisive thing in our region and your characters have to travel between enemy lines that takes them across many different regions and many different cities and many different people. So let's say we were in the middle of the continent in this case for your war to be on. Look at, again, the real world when making these continental decisions. The United States itself, I'll use it as an example. We have many uh, mountain ranges in the United States. We have Appalachian Mountains. We have the great mountain chain along uh, Montana to Nevada. It is a very diverse place. We also have the Great Plains and a lot of very snowy and cold areas, as well as very tropical areas, kind of like Florida and South uh, California and very hot places like Southern Texas. So even though your map can be small, much like the United States in the grand scale of things, um, you could have multiple regions and multiple archetypes of like temperatures and uh, just general areas within your map. Don't be afraid to, again, look at the real world for inspiration. And when it comes down to placing your regions and your terrains, I tend to use mountains as a good sort of um, guide as to where I want regions to be. I tend to put mountains somewhere between the center of the continent and the coast of the continent. Um, Again, this is this is a little abstract to think about. We're think, we're talking about a very visual medium in a podcasting setting, so we're gonna have to, you know, use our imaginations a little bit when I'm talking about this. But I tend to put mountains sort of cutting off the uh, ocean from the rest of the continent, and I do this because that's kind of how the real world is. You tend to have large bodies of water just 
far enough away from the mountain where you get a sort of lush, um, very well-temperated side uh, between the ocean and the mountain. And between the mountain and the rest of the continent, it tends to be a little bit arid. So think about where you want to put savannas and deserts and maybe you have some uh, more farm-based economies around that arid area and maybe more like lush, rich industrial um, economies on the other side where it's maybe a little bit um, a little bit wetter, maybe a little bit uh, more seafaring because you have access to that ocean that's a big uh, thing when making an economy, right? So if you have the ocean, you can export stuff. The cities around that ocean are probably a little bit wealthier than the ones that aren't. That's generally speaking. And a good source of inspiration when I'm thinking about building an entire continent, I really look to other RPGs outside of D&D. I tend to look at uh, Pokemon games are really good at this. Um, thinking of an example here, the fourth generation of Pokemon games, the Sinnoh region has a very wide diversity of um, map of map terrains. It's the, the north is very snowy and very windy. There's a lot of blizzards that happen. There's a huge mountain range down the center of the continent that sort of gives you a general divide um, with this certain Pokemon region. And even with that, there are certain Pokemon variants that only appear on certain sides of mountains. So think about when, when you're putting your mountains down, uh, maybe monster locations are different. Maybe on one side of the mountain, there's goblins that, you know, kind of thrive on the, uh, the dense sort of burrowing and hiding of the uh, the lusher parts of the mountainside. And then on the other side where it's more arid, uh, maybe you have I don't know, more kobolds, maybe uh, smaller monsters that tend to hide in underground labyrinths and burrows. Um, so think about your, uh, I can't think of the word for it, the word for uh, where certain creatures lie in terms of geography. But think of your geography when doing monster places. It'll make your world way more believable. And also, uh, I'm talking about believability, spread your cities around too. Um, a lot of cities, at least in the real world, are based around um, two things. They're usually based around rivers or they're based around um, very expensive natural resources. So when you're placing down a city, don't put a town maybe directly in the middle of nowhere, unless that middle of nowhere has something to offer. Maybe like a fertile land for farming or a place to mine. Maybe there's some very valuable ore underneath the city. Um, a lot of pop-up towns that tend to hit it off are usually along rivers. Think about Mesopotamia. Uh, in the real world, those were, that was a very, uh, a very good region for farming because the there were these rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, that jutted into the continent and gave very lush, fertile grounds for farming. So this massive civilization sprung up. Think about that with your D&D campaign. Are there any rivers nearby that can foster these massive cities and towns? Maybe they're along a trade route in this in this uh in this river. Um, Thinking about the Mississippi River in the United States again, using another United States example because it's what I know. Um, Louisiana has a very large um, uh, port, or at least it used to, um, because that's where the Mississippi River would enter or would exit out into the Gulf of Mexico. So uh, states that were higher up on that river, uh, notably Missouri, because I'm, spoilers, I'm from Missouri, 
we had a lot of riverboats. So we would send our supplies down the river and because the river was just empty, it would just carry the boat safely down and we could trade our goods and whatnot. So that can apply also to D&D. Um, in the map that I'm going to be including with this podcast on YouTube, I have a couple of unnamed rivers. I didn't name any of my rivers because I'm silly. But there are a couple of towns nestled along these rivers. And in the lore of this world, I won't go into too much detail, but one of the towns here is called Dagger Town. And it is a larger, not, not quite a metropolis, not quite a village. It's, it's sort of just a large town that fosters a lot of trade. Uh, because of this river, they trade a lot with sort of the coastal larger cities. And the reason they got the name Dagger Town was because it's a little bit shadier. There's a lot of money coming into the city. A lot of coin changes hands within the borders of this town. So you want to look for maybe the dagger in someone's sleeve, you know? It's it's sort of a world-building thing when you look at it. And uh, that's something I kind of just want to touch on. Um, the names of your towns can don't have to be super eloquent or very <laughs> very well thought out if they just convey a message maybe the town is named after somebody in the map that i'm looking at i have a town named goto's crater goto being the forgotten realms god of the forge it is an area of great mining and metal craft there's a lot of orcs and stocky humans that put this uh this natural resource to work and really exemplify what uh, Goto is as a god in this world and you know maybe the gods aren't exactly how they are in the Forgotten Realms because I am bending them a little bit but in this aspect the town's name conveys what they're all about um, and then just uh, just east of Goto's crater in the middle of this like large plains next to a forest is Elma and Elma is a small farm town named after um, one of the conquerors of the region and that's something that the players don't need to know uh, but it is a part of the world's lore if the characters get curious and decide maybe to go to a library and research the the names and like what these places why they're named the way they are you need to have sort of a reason as to why they're named that way if you just kind of shrug your shoulders and like I don't know it's just named Elma that that this isn't like that kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth right you want to have your world be as believable as possible, especially when dealing with players who have never seen it before. When you're homebrewing, your world is your baby. You need to take care of it. You need to have all sorts of details worked up. And if that's something that you just make up on the fly, then, you know, own it. Think of like, oh, the town's name is Elma. Um, Elma was the, and you're like kind of flipping through your mental notes. Elma was the name of the person that founded the town. It was uh, Garrus Elma, the famous farmer who grew crops three times the size, you know, and that maybe that's just where they got their name, you know, just kind of wing it. And if you wing it, write it down. That's now part of your world. If you make up something, it is now a part of you. It's a part of that world now. It is out there into the world. And something that I feel like doesn't get um, enough love when making custom uh, campaigns and custom mapping is uh, trade and politics. And that's something that 
we know quite a bit in our own real world, and it's very, very true in the world of D&D. Trade is something that can make or break a city. If a city's trade goes, their money goes. If the money goes, the people go. If the people go, you don't have a town or city anymore. So when you're putting together your town, is it poor? Is it a poor town? Um, kind of like Elma? Is it... Um, do, do they rely on just one sort of trade or one sort of labor for their income? Uh, is it a town like Daggertown? And they have a lot of exports going in and out of the city through the river. Maybe they're a little bit more... Um, a little bit more advanced because they have more money. Um, another town in this world that I've made is uh, its actually one of the capitals, and it's a very large seaport town on the coast. Um, and they make all of their money through uh, both tourism and shipping goods. That is their shtick. They ship goods all over the continent. They have the largest selection of, uh, of boats, and freight trading vessels that you could ever imagine. And that's why a lot of people bring their goods here to sell them and get them off into the world because there's no, they're like the FedEx or like the UPS of uh, trading goods in this region. And so they're very wealthy. They don't have to do much. It's a very lush, beautiful town that has a, uh, a business sect that doesn't require a lot put into it, but it can generate a lot of income. And maybe that gives them a lot of political power. Maybe that, because they have a lot of money and they have a lot of pull with the trade, maybe they can uh, they can twist some arms with the other uh, communities. Maybe they butt up to Elma and they're like, hey, if you want this year's crop to be distributed a little bit farther and have people know about, you know, your sort of great goods, maybe you uh, maybe you use our trading system. Maybe you don't deliver things uh, through yourself or through freelancers. Maybe you uh, maybe use our boats, you know? Nestle up to them. And now, continuing on with politics in the context of Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition and map making, is uh, don't be afraid to put in map divides. Now, when you talk about uh, D&D as a whole, the, the sort of the term of railroading is sort of uh, the dirty word when it comes to uh, being a game master. But there are times where uh, railroading is necessary, and none of that is more apparent than when your characters are exploring a world. If you don't have a part of the world even thought of, if it is not even conceived, um, <laughs> you can't have them just wandering around in there. Uh, it's very difficult to make up large pieces of land on the fly and have it be believable so putting in divides is almost necessary maybe there we'll go back to the war example there's a war happening on the continent there are um, military checkpoints of you know you can't cross this because it's dangerous or there is a blight taking over the land in this area and we can't have people going in and getting hurt so we just we can't let you go through and the players might fight back on that but it's your job as a dm to kind of let them know hey you're not supposed to be here um and that's going into more just general gm tips and whatnot that we're not going to cover here um and then on the opposite side of that is letting your players discover things on their own um sometimes when you make a world and you have very deep rich lore and very great ideas and hooks that you want your characters to just just oh let them see it but you need to let them find it 
right? It's no, it's not interesting if the author, you know, like if you're reading Harry Potter and J.K. Rowling busts through the window and spoils the book for you because she's very proud of what she wrote. It's you need to read that on your own to experience it, and it's very true with D and D. Like we talked about with the naming of the towns, maybe your the name of your town can go deeper than just a name. Maybe it's a a secret. Maybe the name of your town is of a long dead god who people don't dare utter the true name of, but over time, the name of this town that's named after that dead god has been uh, warped and uh, changed into new dialects. So it doesn't resemble the name of the long dead god. And just speaking the name brings up this like Cthulhu-esque threat. So you can really build that into your world. You can really bake that into it and let your players discover that themselves. Let them research it. Let them talk around. Maybe there's some rumors of, you know, an anniversary of sorts. And it's like, hmm, where did this come from? Let them, let them dig into it. And the last part I want to talk about with the politics section of map making is um, having the story and the politics of your story influence the way the map is interacted with. Maybe there's a story event where uh, we'll go back to another thing that we referenced in the podcast, uh, throwing a watermelon at the king. <laughs> Maybe one of your players does that. They chuck a watermelon at the king and now he is very upset. And uh, the king says, well, where did these players come from? And then it's known where you come from. And now that place is affected because you have social ties with that region and have now represented yourself maybe a little bit badly towards another region. So you're kind of like, in this example anyway, a liaison for the worst. And that can have some effects on the world around you. Maybe once word catches once people catch word of what happened, the people in that original town that they think that you're from, uh, maybe they don't treat you as well. Maybe goods now at the local shop are a little bit more expensive than they were. Or uh, the innkeeper is a little bit more hostile and kind of gives you the uh, the uh, the worst of the rooms. Maybe your bed isn't as comfy. I don't, maybe it's more severe and people from that town take a hit out on you. And now that's an encounter building situation where you can have assassins come after the players and they have to deal with it it's it's a sort of uh way to make it the world more deep kind of artificially you can make the world deeper than it really is and that's not necessarily a bad thing because your players don't know what you're planning there there's a thing that uh someone in my campaign um Every time we're going over a mystery and one of the players in that campaign says, well, maybe it's such and such. And it's something like way left field that's kind of crazy and that I didn't think of. One of the other players will be like, shh, you're giving him ideas. And then like, I will implement that later down the road. Maybe your players come up with the hook that's way more interesting than what you came up with. And now it's now it's now it's my hook. I made this, you know, so it, it can be it can be a, a great learning experience just having your players interact with the world that you already give them put them in their sandbox let and see what they build see you know see their sand castles and if they're good you'll make it into you know a part of your own sandbox all right and the very last thing i want to talk about 
in this episode. This would be a little bit of a shorter episode because, you know, it is solo. I am talking about kind of a narrow topic. But the last thing I want to talk about is actually giving your map to your players. And that's a no-brainer, you know. You just take the PNG or, you know, take a picture of what you've drawn on your paper and you send it to your group chat. Or you show off the piece of paper next time you, you, uh, you know, get to your party. And I, I, I want to talk about why that's not necessarily a good idea. I am a huge fan of giving the map out in chunks. Um, and when the map is given out in chunks like this, your players can start to put them together and see the larger world around them. It's that sort of uh, player overload thing we talked about in uh, the world building episode. And you don't want to introduce too many new things to your characters because then they won't know what to do. It's harder to kind of steer them in the right direction that you need them to go. So giving your map out in sections can also give them a sense of, okay, this is where we can go. This is our sandbox. These are the walls of our sandbox. This is where we're allowed to build. And, you know, maybe when they're done with that region, you give them a new chunk. Maybe now um, they bought a map to a new region at a local store or a traveler has run into them in a tavern and decides like, oh, I have a map to this other region I can give you. And now they're unlocking more of the world and now they have new points that they can go to. Um, something I put in a lot of my maps are places to sort of quote unquote fast travel. Um, I know a lot of DMs don't like fast travel. It kind of takes the uh, random encounter space out of D&D, but I feel like it just makes the night longer. You know, if if you're going from town A to town B and you have to fight like three encounters on the way, that's like almost an hour just for those three encounters because D&D uh, &D combat takes a long time, a long, long time just to run simple encounters. Depending on your party size, it could be way different. Um, so I... I am a great fan of fast travel. Uh, certain areas of my map, maybe they have uh, they have boats that will take your players across the uh, across the ocean to new cities and new port towns and more river cities for you know maybe a few gold. Maybe they did something really good in the town and they get a voucher for one free trip to you know who knows where. It's very. Uh, the, the design space is all yours, very, very much so in this case. Uh, you can make, you know, magic portals that teleport people clear across the continent if they need to get somewhere very quickly, or if they decide that they want to go through a different part of the campaign. If you're one of those creators that likes to give large spanning continents and worlds to your characters to just play around in, teleportation is, well, that's, it's basically begging for it, you know? It's the best and easiest way to travel. And uh, when you're getting across like smaller areas like maybe town to town, maybe there's a carriage, you know, goes a little bit faster. And that doesn't mean you can't have encounters along the way. If you're the DM type that likes to put in fast travel, but make it maybe a little bit risky if you go fast travel. If you do regular travel, maybe it's a little bit safer, you know, you travel along the trail, you run into less things. But if you're doing fast travel, you know, that boat that you got on to go to down the river or whatever, you can get attacked by like a kraken or something or... Maybe some pirates, you know, show up to your ship and decide to start to, uh, you know, to board. Maybe on the ship it, you hit a wrong day and some of the, uh, that maybe there's a mutiny on the ship. And now your characters are caught in a crossfire between a mutinous crew and a captain who's treating them badly. It is 
it, there's infinite design space there and you can make something as mundane as just traveling from point a to point b a grand adventure or you can make it just you know simply popping in from point a to point b it, it's super super flexible like that all right and that is where i want to end today's episode i hope you had a good time listening to this episode of area of expertise uh, new episodes every Saturday. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, I am at it's Butlet. That's I T S B U T T L E T. Uh, follow me there for a lot of updates on how the show is going, especially when new episodes drop. I like to post it there. Also, following us on YouTube is a great way uh, to keep in touch with the podcast because that is where I post a lot of extra links and resources to stuff that we talk about during these episodes because I can't include links in the uh, the other versions of this. So if you're listening to this on Spotify or um, soon to be Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, uh, want to thank you. I appreciate you listening to us. And uh, be sure to follow us there if you want some more updates on what we're doing. All right. Uh, this has been Wyatt, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed our show, you can support us by leaving a rating on Area of Expertise. If you are listening on YouTube, a like or subscription is a great way to let us know you want more. This has been AoE, and we'll see you in the next one.